The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and let's turn back to the book of Daniel. We're in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Amen. <laughs> it's exciting to be back in the book of Daniel, and I guess uh, it's exciting for you too, so that's, that's a good thing. So uh, we're quickly approaching the end of this tremendous book, and uh, there's still so much more to glean. Uh, Daniel, chapter 11, drops us right into the middle of the fourth and final vision that was personally given to Daniel. Uh, there's other dreams in the book of Daniel. There's dreams that Nebuchadnezzar received and that Daniel interpreted. Uh, but these are the visions that were specifically given to Daniel, received by Daniel. He receives a vision in chapter 7, a vision in chapter 8, a vision in chapter 9. And then in chapters 10 through 12, there's just one long revelation that was given from God. And the vision that we have in chapters 10 through 12 is the last of the four visions. It's the, the longest of the four visions. It's also the most detailed and complete of the four visions. It takes us all the way from Daniel's time all the way into the future millennial kingdom, and it's absolutely incredible. And the, the level of detail that we find in chapter 11 is so clear and so specific that the only way for unbelieving critics to maintain their unbelief is to consider this section a forgery. That it's written after the fact. It's that specific. Imagine picking up a, a book and then you begin reading. The first president of the United States fought in the Revolutionary War, rejected the title of king, and was unanimously elected as the first president. The 16th president led the country through a civil war, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and was assassinated in a theater. The 32nd president was the only president to be elected to four terms, led the country through the Great Depression and the Second World War, and the 35th president was the youngest to be elected and was publicly assassinated as he traveled in Dallas, Texas. You pick up a book like that and you say, okay, you know, somebody's given a brief snapshot of, you know, several of our more famous presidents. But then you look at the back of the book and this book you discover was written 300 years before America was even a nation. That would be scary <laughs> and maybe hard for you to believe. But if it was proven to be true that that book was written before America became a nation, the only explanation for that book is that it's supernatural. And that's just how clear the book of Daniel is. That specific, the details about people and places and events all ahead of time. The book of Daniel is that clear. And in chapter 11, we're told about rulers like Ahasuerus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, and even people like Cleopatra the First, hundreds of years before their time. We have details about family feuds and betrayals that you would never be able to guess. In fact, there's so much widespread agreement on the accuracy of these details that not even unbelievers question the history. Unbelievers don't question the history. They just say that it couldn't have been written ahead of time. It just couldn't have been. They deny that Daniel really wrote what he did. 
Because to admit that Daniel wrote this before it happened is to admit that there's a God who controls history. Just as Isaiah 46 and verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And we'll get into the details of this prophecy and its exciting truth and a devastating argument for the inspiration of God's word. But it's important to keep in mind that the point of Daniel chapter 11 is not simply to teach us that God knows the future. I hope we all know that. It's not merely to teach us that God knows the future as true as that is and as glorious as that is. Daniel 11 has to be kept within its historical context. It's not simply there to let us know that God knows the future, but it's to answer a specific prayer that Daniel had back in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 and verse 3. Chapter 10 and verse 3. Actually, I'll start at verse 2. <laughs> in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel was denying himself of even the most basic necessities and comforts of life. He fasted to match the distress of his soul for God's people, Israel. But where did this distress come from? Why was Daniel so desperate for God? We pointed this out last time we were here. The historical setting of this chapter is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And that's significant because what that means is that the decree for the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple already took place. They'd already been released to go back to Jerusalem. But it's recorded in the book of Ezra that only a remnant of those who were in Babylon returned to the land. And even though the altar was reconstructed, the, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem was frustrated because there was opposition from the people surrounding Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 4, we read this in verse 4 and 5. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, frightened them from building, hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So even though the people of God returned to Jerusalem, the sanctuary was desolate. The people of God were still a reproach among the nations. The temple was a pile of rocks. The city was buried underneath the rubble. The people who returned there were discouraged and many more remained in Babylon, completely apathetic to the work of God. They seemed content to just let it go. They're comfortable in Babylon. Why turn, why, why we turn back to, to Jerusalem? You know, go back to Jerusalem for what? You know, we'll stay here in Babylon. And Daniel was grieved over this. The reproaches of God's people fell on him and he, he lost his appetite for food, for comfort. He agonized over his people in prayer and through tears and fastings. The question was, what will become of these, your people? And this prophecy that we read here was given in direct response to Daniel's prayer for a people that were discouraged, frightened, frustrated. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 14, when the angel comes, he says, Now I have come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. That's what Daniel was struggling with. What's going to happen to these people? So the angel comes to give him an answer to that question. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your people in the latter days. 
This is about the future, Daniel. I want to let you know about the future of your people. I know that's why you're struggling. I know that's why you've been fasting. I know that's why you're distressed. Let me tell you what's going to happen to your people. And the importance of this prophecy can hardly be questioned. Preceded by three weeks of fasting and prayer. Introduced by what I would argue is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ in chapter uh, chapter, uh, uh, 9 and chapter uh, 10. You have this pre-incarnate vision of Christ. It was a hand-delivered message by an angelic messenger. In verse 10, this angelic messenger touched him and set him trembling on his hands and knees. The delivery of this message was opposed by a ruler of wickedness in heavenly places. In verse 13, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding the angel from bringing this message. This is a, a message that could, you could hardly doubt the importance of the message. And it was so urgent that the angel left the battlefield to come to Daniel to rush back to the battlefield. But I've got to come and, and break away from the battle just so I can give this message to you. It was that important, extremely important. But then we have commentators that speak of this section of scripture and they say, we do not see how it could be used for a sermon. Excuse me? (laughs) You can't see how this could be used for a sermon? It was that important that an angel had to break away from the battlefield to give the message, but then we can't give that message to God's people? Of course this can be used for a sermon. I would actually argue that this is one of the most remarkable and encouraging of all the visions of Daniel. And it would have been exactly what Daniel needed to hear in order to give him hope. But you have to hang in there with me to see all the hope that's contained in this. But believe me, it's worth the ride. So let's jump in. Daniel chapter 11, and I'll start at verse 2. If you remember from last time, uh, chapter 1 was kind of like the, uh, the back end of chapter 10. I kind of wrapped up that introductory vision with this unnamed angel who's going back to the battlefield in verse 1, he says, I, uh, in the first year of uh, Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection to him, talking about Michael, the, the archangel. So he talked about that, and now he's going to get into the vision proper. In Daniel chapter 11 and verse 2, this is where he begins to tell him what the revelation from God is. Look at verse 2. It says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this text. We thank you for your revelation, your your revelation that that instructs us, that that teaches us, that reproves us. Father, a revelation that's been given by you. A revelation here that was so important for angels to break away from the battle to give it to Daniel. And Father, I pray that we would behold wonderful things as we look in your word. Father, that you would give us encouragement. And uh, Father, that uh, you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If all you knew about the people of God was what you saw from the outward appearance, it wouldn't look very hopeful. It doesn't look very hopeful as you look at the people of God on the outside. We've never been the association of the the rich, the famous, the popular, the powerful, the protected, the influential. From the beginning, we've been the association of the not many. That's that's us. We're the association of the not many. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The strength of numbers and the power of position has never seemed to be on the side of truth. 
And you see the same story over and over again in Scripture. Moses versus Pharaoh. The power is on the side of Egypt. Israel versus the Canaanites. The strength was on the side of Canaan. Gideon versus the Midianites. The numbers were on Midian's side. David versus Goliath. The size was on the side of Goliath. And then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he refers to them as a little flock. Little flock. Don't be afraid, little flock. And that's our story. We're we're the little flock. That's our story and we're sticking to it, right? We're, We're still part of that little flock. We're part of that remnant. We're not the many wise, not the many mighty, not the many noble. And the same was true for for Daniel. And when he received this revelation, the first thing that Daniel hears in the vision is not, and three more kings are going to arise in Israel. That's not what he hears. Look at verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. You know what this is telling Daniel? The the power is still not coming back to Israel. (laughs) Israel is still going to be the, the little player on the field. You know, the, the, the big players are going to be outside of, of Israel. And if you thought that the people returning to Israel meant the end of trouble and freedom from relief and oppression, if that's what you thought was going to happen when Israel returned back to Jerusalem, uh, you need to think again. This, this was not the end of your trouble. This was just the beginning of it. This is the beginning of trouble. So the first thing that Daniel is reminded is that Israel is not going to be the major player on the world stage anytime soon. And the same is true for us as believers today. As we look out at the world around us, it can become very discouraging. The influence in this world seems to be given over to the rich, the powerful, the schemers, the wicked. Where's the influence of the righteous, you might ask? When do do the, the people of righteousness have their day? When are we on top? Standing for righteousness is discouraging because standing for the sake of Righteousness is actually considered evil in today's society. To stand up to say the truth. You can't speak the truth anymore. You're you're looked at as being evil for for merely standing on your convictions. Stating what's true. That's a problem. And those are the people that are stamped out. We can become frightened as we think about what this world holds for our children and grandchildren growing up in a world that's so hostile to the truth. People can become frightened over that. What's, What's the future going to be? For us. We're we're not in charge. We're not the people of influence. We're not on top. And we can become frustrated. The work of God can become frustrated. The work that we're attempting to do for the Lord can be frustrated. And there will be people who will be successful in stopping what you're trying to do for the Lord. Just as Israel was prevented. You know, here they are. They're trying to pull the temple together and offer up their sacrifices. And from the outside, they're being put to a stop. They're being halted from the work of the Lord. There will be frustration for the people of God sometimes. That's going to happen. And that's literally what happened to Israel. As these major superpowers are battling it out, Israel's just being trampled over in the process. If Syria in the north wanted to get to Egypt in the south, they would trample over Israel to get there. If Egypt in the south wanted to get to Syria in the north, they'd trample over Israel to get there. And all Israel was to these superpowers was just a a small highway across the desert. And they got trampled on back and forth, back and forth. Israel was small, insignificant, powerless. And many of you might have come in here today and, and that's your story. 
that I just feel so powerless. <laughs> that standing for the truth, I just feel like I'm just being trampled on. I'm just being defeated by the superpowers that are out there. Faithful service doesn't seem to be rewarded. Just doing what's right doesn't seem to be rewarded in the world that we live in. And those who have the influence are the rich, the powerful, the schemers, the wicked. They're the ones who have the power. And I'm just being pulled back and forth and trampled on as the world powers just kind of trample over us. But what this passage lets us know is that the kingdom to come will not be given over to the rich, the powerful, the schemers, and the wicked. That's not who gets the kingdom. And there's something else that this text lays out for us, that any and all opposition is still under the control of a sovereign God. (laughs) Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 is still true. The Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And when you begin to walk through this text, the word that is repeated is not that this might happen or this may happen or this could happen. That's not what the text says. Look at verse 2. It says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Who's really in charge? The one who's behind the scenes is really in charge. And he's telling you what's going to happen in the future. This angel is revealing to Daniel the sure and certain word of God. God is still in charge, Daniel. I know you feel powerless. I know you feel trampled on. But there's still a God behind all of this who's still ruling and reigning in the heavens. The Most High is still the ruler over the realms of mankind. And what I'm telling you is the truth. This is what's going to happen. This is what's inscribed in the writing of truth. And we can understand that forever God's word is settled in heaven and nothing is going to stop God's word, right? We can trust in that. And on the surface, the race seems to be given to the swift and the battle to the strong. But behind the scenes, there's a God who's sovereignly orchestrating all things to fulfill his intended design. And the kingdom to come will not be given over to the swift and the strong, but to the righteous who belong to God. Number one, the kingdom is not given to the rich. Look at verse 2. It says, now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Daniel is recording this revelation in the third year, like I mentioned, of Cyrus, king of Persia. And he's told that there will be three more kings after Cyrus. And then there will be a fourth. And history records who those kings were. After Cyrus died in 529 BC, there was a succession of four kings in a row. First, there was Cambyses, the son of Cyrus. Then there was Pseudosmyrtus, who reigned for a short time. And then there was a third king, Darius I, Hystaspes, uh, uh, who was also known as Darius the Great or Darius the Great. If you've ever heard about the, the Battle of Marathon, that was the Battle of Darius the, the Great, where he attempted to defeat Greece at Athens. And the Greek army inflicted a crushing defeat on his Persian army, even though the Persians outnumbered the Greeks. And according to Herodotus, the the Greek historian, an Athenian runner named Phidepides was sent to run from Athens to Sparta to ask for assistance in the battle. And there was a myth that after the Greeks won the battle, Phidepides ran from Marathon to Athens to announce the victory. And then after announcing the victory, he died from exhaustion. And that's why I don't run marathons. (laughs) 
But, but that comes from this period of time. I mean, we're talking about secular history now, right? But this is what the Bible predicted would happen before it happened. That's all in the Word of God. And then following Darius the Great, there was a fourth king. And uh, again, in verse 2, it says, Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. There was this, this fourth king who tried to finish the job that his father couldn't do, now, Darius the Great, couldn't take over Greece. So, you know, this fourth king says that he's going to arouse his whole empire to kind of get him ready for another war. He was a king by the name of Xerxes, but we know him better by his name in Hebrew, which is Ahasuerus. Flip over to the book of Esther real quick. The book of Esther. Look at chapter 1 of the book of Esther. This is just so incredible how all this fits together. Book of Esther, uh, chapter 1. Look at this. Starting at verse 1. It says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from uh, India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. Just like Daniel predicted, this fourth king, Ahasuerus, was loaded I mean, and you, can, you can read about it there in the first chapter of, of Esther. All the, I mean, gold couches, who's got that? Silver on a mosaic pavement. I mean, he's got, got riches on the floor. This is the kind of riches that Ahasuerus had. And part of this banquet was gathering all these members of, of the, you know, uh, you know the, the princes, the attendants, the army officers. Why is he gathering all these people together? Basically, he's trying to, you know, get them ready to, to get, try to get their support to go to war. This is what Daniel talks about. Just like Daniel predicted, this fourth king, loaded with riches, became strong through his riches, you know, has a, has a, a splendor display for 180 days and a seven-day feast. And part of this banquet was designed to gain support from his nobles and princes and army officers to do battle with Greek, Greece. He's trying to impress them. He's impressing these people to gather them for support. So it's no wonder that when uh, Queen Vashti was called to come out and do a little dance in front of the, uh, these dignitaries, that uh, it was an embarrassment to King Ahasuerus that his wife wouldn't listen. Here I am trying to get these army officers and princes to come and follow me, and I can't even get my own wife to follow me. It's an embarrassment for King Ahasuerus. But that's another story. My point here is that power was on the side of riches, Ahasuerus was rich, and because of his money, he was able to gather this, the largest army in the ancient world. Hundreds and thousands of soldiers in a navy with hundreds of ships. He spent four years preparing an attack on Greece, and in 480 BC, uh, but he was defeated by the Greeks, just like his father was. 
His money couldn't save him. His quest for a global, a global kingdom uh, wasn't going to, to be reached, attained. The kingdom wasn't given over to Ahasuerus because he was rich. There was no security in his riches. You can flip back over to, to Daniel. But he spent four years trying to gather people together for this attack, but there was no security in his money to win. The kingdom is not given to the rich. It's not given to the rich. And if you're here thinking that somehow money's going to solve the problems that you have, keep in mind that the, uh, the largest army that money could buy could not gain Ahasuerus' victory. Why do you think it's going to solve your problems? <laughs> money couldn't solve his Job 31, 24, and 25 says, If I've put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because of my great wealth, because of my hand, secured so much, that too, in verse 28, would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Trusted in his riches. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. In Luke 12 and verse 15, Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Money is not the path to freedom and security. And even when you have an abundance of it, it cannot guarantee you security. And definitely can't guarantee you eternal security, right? Proverbs 11 verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. And there is coming a day of wrath. A day when we will all have to stand before the Lord and riches will not buy you entrance into the kingdom of God. Ahasuerus was a clear illustration to us that money is a false hope. False hope. He couldn't gain the kingdom by his wealth and neither will you. And Israel was to learn that they couldn't trust in their riches. The kingdom is not given to the rich. Number two, back in Daniel, look at verse three. It says, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. Though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. The kingdom's not given to the rich and the kingdom's also not given to the powerful. And here we have a mighty king who arose and we already know who this mighty king is. Now, we've been introduced to him back in chapter 8, the mighty king who arose after the Persians with great authority was Alexander the Great. Alexander was put forward as the, the new king at the young age of 21. Alexander was determined to pay back the Persian army because of their attack on Greece. Remember, again, the, the Persians tried to attack Greece, attack Athens, and Alexander was determined that he's going to get back at Persia for what they've done. And he met the Persian army at the Granicus River, defeated them, even though he was greatly outnumbered. With only 35,000 men, Alexander's forces plunged through the river and attacked uh, Darius's 100,000 men and 10,000 horsemen. After defeating Persia, he traveled south to Egypt, received submission from the cities along the way. He freed the Greek city-states, other places that had been held in bondage. And when he arrived in Egypt, he was held as a liberator. By the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, traveled as far, far east as India, and in 326, he fought an Indian prince about 40 miles west of the Indus River, defeated him, and it was only after defeating this prince of India that his army turned back because they'd had enough. 
Under Alexander the Great, Greece conquered all of the known world in only 10 years. That's fast. 10 years. Never lost a battle and was set to weep in his 20s because there were no more lands for him to conquer. He was a military genius, still considered one of history's most successful military commanders. But as powerful as Alexander was, he couldn't even protect his own children. Think about that. This is a man who never lost a battle, conquered the known world, but he couldn't even protect his children. Not one of his descendants would succeed him on the throne. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up, verse 4 says, and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants. Alexander had a son, also named Alexander, who was murdered in 310 B.C. Alexander had another son named Hercules, who was also murdered in 309 B.C. Alexander had a half-brother, who was also murdered in 317 B.C. So none of his descendants could ascend the throne. Conquered the world, but couldn't protect his family. His former kingdom would, have, would not have the same authority that he had. Again, in verse 4, it says, Nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. After Alexander died at the age of 32 or 33, his empire was broken up into four regions, and his four generals battled it out until they became the leaders of the four regions. The Greek empire never regained its strength that it possessed underneath his leadership. And that's a sad but powerful reminder that great power does not guarantee great security. And this isn't, isn't that what makes power so, so alluring? Why people go after power? Because they think it's going to give them some kind of security? People imagine that they're protected by their power. You know, if only I could work my way into that position of authority, then I'd be safe. I'd finally find security. If I could get into this position. But God can take down a giant with nothing more than a stone if he wants, right? You're not safe because you have a position of power. And Alexander is a reminder that great power does not come with great security. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23 and 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And if Israel thought that the pathway to security was through a superior military power, you couldn't find a greater military power than the Greek army under Alexander the Great. They were undefeated. But that's not where hope was to be found. And like I said, even Alexander couldn't protect his own family. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. That's, that's where we find security, right? The kingdom is not given to the rich. The kingdom is not given to the powerful. And the kingdom is also not given to the schemers. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. It says, Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed, and after some years they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. And what we have in verses 5 down to 21 is this long list 
of schemes and tricks and maneuvering and manipulation, all in order to get ahead. And it's all the kind of drama of a, a modern day soap opera, you know, a murder mystery, but it's all in real life. And everyone is part of this mad pursuit and constant struggle to get on the top. And that's the story of mankind, right? You know, wars are, are fought over this. You know, people who are made out of dirt, fighting for dirt with other people who are also made out of dirt. And that's the story of the world. You know, we're all battling it out, trying to get on top. People, you know, conniving and maneuvering and manipulating because they want to get ahead and they want what you have. And, you know, they're, they're discontent. This is the story of our, our world. And here you have, again, Israel caught in the middle between these plots for power. They're not the major players here. They're, they're just getting tossed back and forth by whoever the superpower is at the time, trying to retain, you know, some kind of position. To the south of Israel, like I said again, it was Egypt, ruled by the Ptolemies. To the north of Israel was Syria, ruled by the Seleucids. And there's this incredible amount of history here, actually hundreds of years of history, a lot of details, but all of this has been carefully selected to tell us about the schemes of man, how men claw their way to the top of the pile and how the people of God were impacted by it. And again, keep in mind that Daniel is concerned for his people, Israel. What's going on with my people? And what he's been told here is that Israel is just going to be the collateral damage as the superpowers duke it out. That's where Israel is. Israel's caught in the middle of this. Let's jump into this. Look at verse 5 again. It says, then the king of the south, this refers to Ptolemy, the ruler of Egypt, will grow strong along with one of his princes, referring to Seleucus, uh, the ruler of Syria to the north, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And, and this is where the power struggle begins. The north and the south. All the scheming starts to take place right here. Look at verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. And one of the ways that countries would make a, a peaceful arrangement was by intermarriage. You know, if I give you my daughter in marriage, uh, that means that we're at peace because I don't want to attack you because you have my daughter, right? You know, so they, they'd intermarry. So the southern king, at this time Ptolemy II, gave his daughter Bernice to the northern king, who at this time was Antiochus II. And Antiochus II actually divorced his wife, Laodice, in order to marry this gift from the south. You know, so he gets this gift in her marriage. It's like, okay, we'll make this peace treaty, uh, but I've got to get rid of my wife in order to receive this southern bell here. You know, so he gets rid of his wife, you know, sends her away. Uh, Laodice is sent away so he can marry Bernice from the south. Uh, Laodice is actually where we get the the city of Laodicea from. It's named after her. So he, he puts her out so he can bring in this southern bell. Verse 6. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. What happened here? The southern king died, the king that he was trying to make peace with. So Antiochus brought his divorced wife back. <laughs> You know, basically it was like, I'll, I'll, I'll marry this, this girl from the south and, you know, her children will be the next rulers. But as soon as the ruler in the south died, he says, okay, I'm going to get my first wife back. He brings her back. And in revenge, this wife that he brought back had him murdered, poisoned him, murdered this Egyptian wife, Bernice, that he also brought and murdered, murdered their infant son. 
So Bernice was given up along with those who supported her, which is exactly what the the text says. Didn't, Didn't really go over too well. And when the South heard about it, they sent up uh, an attack against the king of the north. Verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line, this is actually Bernice's brother, the, 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 the girl who's just been put to death, will arise in his place and will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. At this time, this is uh, Ptolemy III at this time in the south, he's able to show dominance, subjugate the king of the north, even taking the idols back to Egypt as a trophy. You know, I've defeated your gods and the gods of, you know, metal here, and I'm going to bring them back. You know, and that was enough to keep the north in check for a while. You know, I came up and spanked you and, you know, brought the idols back. But at a later time, the north tried to rise up against the king of the south. You know, so, so it's just like the back and, and forth. And, and keep in mind, where do they have to go to make this trip from the north to the south? They're stomping over Israel the whole time. You know, I'm going up to the north to get that. And now they're coming back down. And then we're going back up. So they're trampling back and forth over Israel the whole time. They're just, they're just a strip of highway. Israel's just a strip of highway, not the major player, just a highway under the control of whoever's in charge. And right now, Egypt's in charge, and Israel is just being trampled over as insignificant. But the north isn't done. Look at verse 10. It says, his sons will mobilize, assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may gain, again, wage war up to his very fortress. So again, they're pushing through Israel, gaining territory as they approach Egypt. But Egypt is not going to take it lying down. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So again, just this whole passing back and forth of of power. And Egypt is going to come out on the top of this battle, but they don't stay on top. Look at verse 12. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Thousands are slain, yet he will not prevail. Over in verse 13, it says, For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. The king of the north returns with a great army. And now in verse 14, it says, the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up. Who are the ones among your people? It's talking about Israel now. This is a reference to to the Jewish people who were under Egyptian control. Now they're siding with the north, with Syria in the north. And in some twisted way, they believe they're fulfilling prophecy. But what happens to them? They will fall down. The one time that Israel attempted to get involved with the superpowers and they're defeated. They will fall down. Try to get on the world stage and it ended in major disaster. And how many times do we try to make changes in the arm of the flesh and it turns into a major disaster? <laughs> you know, here the, the people of God jumping into this battle among the superpowers, you know, trying to affect some change and they get stomped out. They will fall down. You know, somehow we think we have things figured out without clear direction from the scripture. 
Israel wasn't called to get involved with this. But here they are, they're jumping into the battle of the superpowers and it ends in disaster for them. They fall down. This wasn't their battle to fight. But they jumped in it anyway. And how many people died in this? Verse 12, it talks about tens of thousands who fell. Like I said, you've got people made out of dirt fighting to retain dirt and fighting other people of dirt. (laughs) Is it worth it? Was it worth it? Tens of thousands of people who died all to get a piece of property for real estate. Thousands of people died to, to somehow satiate some crooked man's desire for more. And that's the story of the world that we live in. That's the story of the world. And here Israel tries to, to jump into the fray and get stomped out because of it. How many times do we jump in a battle that's not ours to fight? Verse 15 says, then the king of the north will come up, come cast up a siege ramp, capture a well-fortified city. This is a, a reference to Sidon, which was under Egyptian control. Forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him, a reference to the king of the north, will do as he pleases. No one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. This king of the north was Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. He is the the superpower that has control over the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? It's another word for Israel. He's in control of Israel, the beautiful land. But it's not beautiful to Antiochus. It's not the beautiful land to him. The beautiful land for Antiochus is down in Egypt. I mean, that's what he's trying to get the whole time. I'm trying to come down and take control of Egypt. All Israel was was a stretch of highway. You're you're just the bypass. You know, I'm just going through you to get to what I really want. It wasn't the beautiful land to Antiochus. The beautiful land was down south. Who cares about this little strip of land in Israel? That's not what I care about. He could not care less about Israel. His eyes were set on Egypt as the beautiful land. But here you have the people of God in the middle. And they're saying, but this is the beautiful land to me. (laughs) This is the land of, of promise. When are we going to have our opportunity to be at peace? When when do we have an opportunity to have any kind of control of our own destiny? Israel doesn't get that opportunity here. You have Antiochus who's got his eyes set on the south, and that's where his face is set. Destruction in his hands and Egypt in his sights. Look at verse 17. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect, he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. It was the desire of uh, Antiochus to to bring Egypt under his control. But rather than attack them directly at this time, he attempted to weaken them from the inside. And he came up with another scheme. Remember, this is all about the schemes of man. And as we mentioned before, one of the ways that you could make peace with another country was by intermarriage. So what he did was he gave him his daughter, he gave to the south in Egypt his daughter, as a gift, was the winter of uh, 194 or 193 BC, Cleopatra I was married to the Egyptian king, Ptolemy V. Ptolemy V was only 16 years old, and at the, di- at the time, Antiochus' daughter, Cleopatra, was only 10. He gave up his 10-year-old daughter in some kind of effort to connive and work his way into control over Egypt. 
This is what Antiochus did. Gave up his daughter, 10-year-old daughter, not to make peace, but somehow to bring destruction and ruin to Egypt. Gave the king of Egypt his daughter. But, verse 17b says, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Backfired. (laughs) Gave his 10-year-old daughter thinking she's still going to be dedicated to dad. And uh, instead, she fell in love with her Egyptian husband and became the enemy of her father. She would not take a stand for him or be on his side. And we know this young queen today is Cleopatra I. She was referred to as a Syrian queen in Alexandria. She was honored with her husband as a manifestation of God. And after her husband died at the age of 30, she became the first queen to rule without a husband. This is Cleopatra I. And from her line was born Cleopatra VII, who most of us are more familiar with. Cleopatra VII was the last queen in Egypt and uh, the last active ruler from 51 B.C. to 30 B.C. before the Romans took over. But before her was Cleopatra I. And this is where the line of Cleopatra started, right here. And Cleopatra decided that she was more attached to her husband in Egypt than she was to her father in Syria. And that was the beginning of the end for her father. Look at verse 18. It says, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. Antiochus started to redirect his attention to the coastal regions of Asia Minor, Greece. But this brought him into conflict with Rome. He scorned Rome when they told him to stop taking over the coast. One history records that in a meeting with the Roman ambassador, he says, Asia does not concern them, the Romans, and he was not subject to their orders. But in verse 18, it says, the commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. And Antiochus was defeated in 191 B.C., north of Athens, then again at 189 B.C., southeast of Ephesus, by soldiers of Rome, under the control of General Scipio, and this was the commander who put, stop, put a stop to the scorn against him. One commentator says, Antiochus the Great, who could have gone down in history as one of the great conquerors of the ancient world, if he had been content to leave Greece alone, instead fulfilled the prophecy of verse 19, and that he had to return to his own land defeated and broken. And as a result of his defeat, he came under the dominion of Rome and was forced to pay Rome tribute. And in 187, while Antiochus and his men were out plundering a temple under Persian control to pay taxes to Rome because they had been defeated by Rome, he was put to death by the city's inhabitants. Look at verse 19. It says, so he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Exactly what happened. That was the... Antiochus the Great, who turned out to be not so great after all. He was a schemer, a conniver. He gave up his 10-year-old daughter in order to gain a kingdom, and it didn't work for him. It backfired, and then he's killed robbing a temple while trying to pay back taxes. What a life. And this is the person who controlled the beautiful land of Israel. This This is the one who gets to be on top. And the king who follows him is no better. Verse 20 says, then in his place one will arise who will Send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger, nor in battle. Following Antiochus the, the third, Seleucus the, the fourth fell under a heavy burden of paying taxes back to Rome. This is the, the king who arose in his place. Came up with the plan of trying to pay these taxes to Rome. And he sent out a tax collector by the name of Heliodorus, Heliodorus, and apparently he thought that he could not only collect taxes for Rome, but also, you know, collect taxes for his own kingdom to 
you know, kind of increase the splendor of his own kingdom. And after a trip to Jerusalem, the jewel, as it's referred to here, to collect taxes from the temple, Heliodorus assassinated the king. So uh, his days were few. He was shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. It was just this tax collector who decided that he could maybe try to take the kingdom for himself. So he was assassinated and perished. And all of these details were known hundreds of years before they occurred. Hundreds of years. I mean, think, think about the accuracy of all these things. The accuracy of God's word. Seleucius IV died in 175 BC, and Daniel's writing in the third year of Cyrus around 536 BC. 360 years ahead of time. No wonder the critics choke on the book of Daniel. There's no way that Daniel could have known all this. There's absolutely no way. Because if Daniel is writing before any of this happened, there's no other option but to say that this book is supernatural. This is a supernatural book. God is in control of all of of history, declaring the end from the beginning. But again, remember that the main point of Daniel 11 is not just to tell us that God knows the future. As marvelous as that is. The story of Daniel chapter 11 is to tell Daniel what's going to happen to your people. What's going to happen to your people, Daniel? Daniel, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your people. Your people are going to be trampled over by the rich, by the powerful, by the schemers. And later on, he's going to say, by the wicked. Look at verse 21. It says, in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Daniel, these are going to be the people who rule over Israel. The rich, the powerful, the schemers, and the outright wicked. That's what's going to happen to your land. And the promised land is going to be nothing more than a means to an end. They're they're trying to get to the prize in the south or in the north. They don't really care about your people. They don't care about you. And they're just trampled over time and time again. Israel is a a pathway, and it's a purse. It's a pathway for us to get back north and south, and it's a purse. Whenever we want to steal from the temple, we'll take what we want to contribute to our cause. That's all Israel is going to be to them. Switching hands from one kingdom to the next, and Israel is nothing. But to the people of God, this was the land of promise, right? This, This is the most important piece of real estate in the entire world. Because this is where God promised to make his name known. That he would dwell there with them. That he would hear their prayers. That he would receive their sacrifice. How could Israel be treated in this way? It's the land that Daniel prayed for back in Daniel chapter 9 verse 16. Oh Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem. Your holy mountain, for because of, your, of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Verse 18 in chapter 9, he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. And this is what becomes of the land? Is this the end of the story for Israel? What is God doing? Is there no inheritance? And if there is an inheritance, how do I get to the inheritance? If it's not through the means that the world gets to their inheritance, if it's not through riches and power and scheming and wickedness, how do we enter the kingdom of God? That's the question. And I'm jumping ahead here. 
But ultimately, here's the answer. There is an inheritance for the people of God. There's an inheritance for the people of God. But it won't be achieved by riches, power, scheming, or wickedness. We're we're the little flock, right? We're those who are trampled over. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. We, We don't get the kingdom by clawing and scratching for it. We get the kingdom because the father has gladly chosen to give us the kingdom. That's how we get it. Kingdom doesn't belong to the rich, powerful schemers. It belongs to the little flock that trusts in the promises of God. That's that's who the kingdom belongs to. And we do have a king, but he's not like any of the kings that we just read about. We have a king. We have a king who was rich, but he became poor for us. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is a king who, who had the riches and gave it up. He's not the one who tried to achieve by riches. This is the king who was all powerful. But what did he do for us? He took on the weakness of our human frailty. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 7. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And this is a a king that doesn't achieve by some kind of backdoor deals and handshakes and winks of the eye. This is not a king who achieves by that. He's not deceitful. He doesn't doesn't gain by schemes and tricks. 1 Peter 2.22, it says, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And this is not a king that, that wins by killing. This is a king who wins by dying. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have an inheritance and we also have a king. And there's a kingdom to come where all those who have been purified will eventually enter. Flip over to to Daniel chapter 12. Look at Daniel chapter 12. I'll start at verse, verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel, you'll get what's coming to you. You don't have to worry about it. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way until the end and you will enter into rest and you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. There will be a kingdom where righteousness will dwell and the people of God will be rewarded, but it's not yet, Daniel. It's not yet. 
There's a kingdom to come. And the purified will enter into that kingdom. And there's a heavenly kingdom right now in heaven. And one day that heavenly kingdom will come to earth. And we will live in a glorified kingdom. And that's what Daniel has promised. You're going to rise again to enter into your allotted portion. That this, this land that people are fighting and killing over by the droves, by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands. People killing for pieces of real estate. Daniel, I'm just going to give it to you. And you're going to rise again to receive your allotted portion at the end of the age. I'm just going to hand it over to you. We're not like the men of this world. We're not like those who are fighting and clawing our way to the top. We're not like those who have to, you know, by riches and power and conniving, you know, attain, you know, what we believe belongs to us. No, we just trust in the Lord and God just gives it to us. That's who we are. We are the people of God and there will be a future reward for the people of God. We're not like the men of this world. That's not us. So what's the point of all this tug of war between the nations? Why did, why did God allow all this to happen? It was only preparation for that final day. It was all preparation. Look back at Daniel chapter 11, verse 35. He says in verse 35, some of those who have insight will fall. Why? In order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. There's a time of the end. Why does God allow all this to happen? To purify his people, to purge his people, to cause his people to look up to him, to make his people recognize that I can't attain, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, influence through my own works. I can't do this on my own. I've got to trust in you. It's, it's to purify his people. And this is exactly what it says back in chapter 12 and verse 10. Many will be pure, purified, refined. This is what I'm doing with you. This is what I'm doing with your people. What's going on with my people? Daniel asked the question. My people are being purified, refined, and purged. And God is using all these things to purify these people for their future glory. But the wicked are still going to act wickedly. (laughs) The wicked aren't going to understand this. They're still going to do what they're going to do. But don't you get tripped up by all this, Daniel. Look to me. Look to me. God has designed these times for Israel's refinement, purging, purification, and ultimately to lead Israel to her Savior so that one day they will mourn over him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. And Daniel's prayer will one day be answered because we don't have to wrestle power down to the ground by our riches, manipulation, wickedness, We'd simply trust in the Lord and the Lord gives us the kingdom. We're like, again, as Jesus said in Luke 12, we're the little flock. We're we're those without the power. We're those without the influence. What what can I do to affect changes in the, the world around us? Everything just seems like we're just being trampled on back and forth. We're this little piece of property in the middle with no power at all to affect the change. That's who we are. But This little piece of property (laughs) that was trampled on back and forth, this one day would become the jewel of the entire world. And it's not because the people would fight for it, but because it would be handed to them. And right here, as we're gathered together as God's people, the world around us doesn't understand what we're doing here. (laughs) You know, the world tramples back and forth over the people of God. You have no power. You have no influence. Why should we pay attention to anything that you have to say? get trampled over, and sometimes people can become discouraged by that, right? 
They become weary by that. Lord, when is this finally going to be over? Lord, how long are we going to be trampled upon like this? But the Lord tells us to be patient, to trust in him, and I'm doing a work in your life, even through what you're experiencing now. We don't have to be on top to know who's in charge. (laughs) Our God reigns, amen? Amen. And one day he will give the kingdom to those who trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together, Lord, and what a wonderful passage of scripture, scripture that reminds us of who our God is, the God who controls history, uh, a God who's not like the other kings, the kings of, of this world who gain power by riches and scheming and conniving. We don't have a God like that. And Father, we do live in a world where we are trampled upon, just like Israel was trampled upon. Uh, but Father, we trust in a sovereign God who will uh, one day uh, just grant the kingdom to those who believe and trust in him. And Father, that's us. <laughs> uh, we'll be given the kingdom in a future day. And Father, I pray that for those of us who are discouraged by the, the back and forth, the tug of war, living in a, in a world where we just seem so trampled on, and Father, where we, we, we're fearful of the, the future, many of us fearful of the future, where we think about uh, the, the times that we, we live in, uh, where uh, righteousness doesn't even seem to be given a voice at all, and Father, where we're overlooked, where we're ignored, and Father, it's not given to us so that we be discouraged by that, but that we would look up, that we would recognize that the scriptures are being fulfilled, uh, that your word uh, will be honored, and that one day uh, the people of God will be revealed. But that's when Christ is revealed. (laughs) It's when he's revealed that we're revealed with him. It's when he's revealed in power that we are also revealed with him. Uh, So Father, I pray that you would give us a longing for Christ, and that we would Give up the pursuits of trying to get on top in this world. That's not for us to do. The battle does not belong to us. The battle is the Lord's. Help us to remember that the battle belongs to Christ. And that we would be content with that. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.